1: This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small-cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy, and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raisings, send them an email with your details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to the BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in the show is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group, a research and campaigns consultancy in Sydney. Uh, and I am joined by James Whelan, investment manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? Uh,
2: not so bad. How are you now,
1: I'm pretty good. A couple of days away from getting back to the office. Really looking forward to that. Uh, also on the line is Ken Vexler, head of Acumen Management, joining us from Amsterdam. G'day, Ken.
3: Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. It's very early here, uh, but happy to be with you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> good. Um, and you sound, you sound, I must say, very chirpy uh, for um, for a s- silly o'clock. So just for just for Ken yeah, in general. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. Give it a minute. Yeah, yeah. Give it a minute. I'll settle right in. My <laughs> yeah. well, we're going to start talking about markets now. So, Ken, you can – yeah. Okay. Um, look, it's a pack show. We are going to talk about the inflation question that seemingly will not go away. We'll talk about the energy problems, supply chain issues in the glo- global economy. We'll look at the moves in rates, especially sh- short-term rates. Uh, and we might look ahead to U.S. company earnings and uh, even a bit of a chat about FX uh, with our guest, Carl Roder from IG Markets. But quickly, first, James uh, – it's been a funny month in markets. A few things have changed. The um, uh, Bank of America fund manager survey is out. What is going on?
2: Uh, interesting survey that sort of popped out. And you are absolutely correct with with what happened. It was a quarter where uh, I always know when the bell starts to ring that I should absolutely never do it. But you start talking about how your performance is for the for the quarter in the middle of September and. Oh, that's, that's the worst thing you could do. Everything sort of, yeah, everything got wiped off towards the end of it. Uh, China situation cropped up and all sorts of stuff with tapering and company reporting and margins and all sorts of nonsense that, that was in there. But the fund manager survey was, uh, was an interesting one. It is, uh, so it was released on the 19th. The... Least bullish survey since October 2020, uh, coincidentally. Uh,
1: October, October 2020 is just after uh, the Fed chair sold all of
2: that stock into the market. Uh, anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, cash levels, always keep an eye on the cash levels, uh, have jumped to a 12-month high at 4.7% from memory. Um, i have to go down as global growth expectations turn negative um, for the first time since April 2020 on inflation, China pessimism, Allocation to bonds sums so at all-time low, which is why cash is so high, and um, uh, there's certain areas in the market that are actually still quite bullish, which is fine. It's just the bonds have been taken out of it. Now, wh- when I saw this, Paul, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into the rest of it, when it was like less bullish, fears on everything, fears on inflation and, and, and where the tariffs is, the first thing that I do as the, as the person is, hang on a minute, when was this survey actually drawn, and it was 8th to 14th of October of when they actually asked, and and I'm not going to lie to you, if it had hit my inbox, if you'd asked me on the 8th of October how I think the markets were going to go, I was absolutely certain more than anything that we'd probably see another, you know, that what happened at the end of September was sort of the start of of a bigger dip. So grain of salt on that one. Ever since then, I mean, you know, the the market's absolutely bullish. Uh, What did you take out of it?
1: Uh, interesting for me, uh, inflation, um, clear number one, tail risk, that is now um, a big thing. I, I loved the chart that they have in there. Um, they asked a question, which we've been asking on the show for months. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think inflation yeah. is transitory or permanent? And it has gone up. Um, so in the October survey, uh, it was 69%. And in the September no, survey, other way around, other way the, that was 58 October was yeah 58 and then um, uh, in September was 69 for transitory and the, the for those saying that they think the inflation is stickier uh, or permanent um, which is a weird term to use for inflation because eventually it will um, move down yeah, yeah, yeah I mean if, yeah. if we had permanent inflation then we'd have a bit of a and anyway um, gone from 28 percent in September to 38 percent so clearly there are a lot more people coming around to the view that this inflation is sticky. Um, yeah. So how about that? How okay. the,
3: yeah, um, I've stopped paying attention. Well, when I say that, I mean, I like what Colgo has just described and what this fund manager survey sort of encapsulates for me is that everything's just sort of behind the curve or by the time anyone catches up and realises, right, the herd is doing this and whatever else, that's generally the time for a turn. And, I mean, I think as you described it, James, in terms of the timing and Colgo, as you've described it now in terms of the, the survey respondents and the numbers going up from, you know, from moving from transitory to sticky as far as inflation, just sort of, to me, signals, well, this is probably the turn in that, the question around transitory versus, you know, more sticky inflation always has been, as we've discussed for months. Always has been. How long is a piece of string? Over what time horizon do you gauge whether something is transitory or indeed sticky? Uh, no one had an answer to that, and and probably still don't. Which is fair enough. But I'm sort of of the mind that that we're we're in that time frame, and we're coming towards the end of that time frame. And to my mind. Yeah, I think we are genuinely transitory. I mean, the the numbers again—you know—define. It depends how you define inflation, but you're defining rates of growth or decline versus actual level, right? So, to my mind, I think that rate is starting to diminish. Therefore, transitory, right? Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, as far as how many people are holding cash versus stocks versus bonds versus Again, James, you're bang on. Like, look when look when the data or the survey period uh, covered and, and look where we are now. Yeah. So in a nutshell, uh, maybe semi-retirement sort of has its perks, but I've found that I've, I've somehow just cut out all the noise. Like, it's not that I don't care, but i found, for me, just a couple of holy grail charts, and I look at those charts. And, and I'm not a technical analyst by any stretch, but honestly, it, it just... The, the way I see it is be aware of what the prevailing narrative is. Dismiss it, but be aware of what it is. Yep. And just be aware of how loud the noise around it at any point in time is. The louder, louder it is, the more people are going to sort of, you know, have something to lean back on and try and continue in the more, whatever momentum they're in. The The quieter it is well we're probably going to be in a sideways market waiting for the next thing that's it and and then just revert to the chart and see what you
1: think that's right yes. well well yeah it's it's james it's like your theory of a thing right so when is when does a thing become a thing and effectively it's just another way, well another way of saying that things are priced in so once enough people think it's an issue um, that all gets put into the price yeah you are but well, it's on but it's on CPC. Yeah, yeah, and the things that are going to bring bring markets on are undone are the ones that nobody is talking about.
3: FX and cross asset at the moment uh, are just—it's it, an interesting – It's actually for me personally, it's quite interesting. And I'll, we'll, as I said, we'll get into it when we have a chat to Kyle. But um, I, everything's yeah. Just, yeah, go on, would, we'll, we'll we'll get him on. I think I, 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 I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind hearing about the FX
2: as a certain slot there, Ken. That's all right. But the um, when it comes to the top three sectors. Following around that, tech has fallen out of um, max conviction um, for it. Energy is moving into rising optimism, and banks is absolute uh, front row center in uh, rising optimism. So the the three, I'm long, I'm long banks, I'm long energy, and, and they are moving into it. Which in this environment, that uh, I think that yeah, that you do need to be, and that can that, that relates to what you're saying, which is like for everything that's going on. Cut out, cut out all the noise, own energy because of what's going on and, and own banks because rates are going up. Apart
3: from that, everything else is really just sort of chatter. Yeah, r- rates, are, rates are going up, are they though, James? Yield, yields are moving, so well, the market's repricing, but you know, are, are rates actually going up? So to your point, yeah, own energy, own bank stocks because rates and whatever else, but these are, yeah, you, you know, every man needs dogs there. And, and and as always is the case, every man needs dogs there thinking that they're going to be the ones that see the turn before everyone else and get out first. So, come on.
1: Look, as has been well telegraphed, uh, our guest this week is a long term friend of the show, a super bright analyst uh, who helps an awful lot of people uh, understand the macro environment on a day-to-day basis in his role as analyst at IG Markets Australia. Before IG, he was an FX dealer. So like we said, we'll be looking at some of the crosses uh, the crosses in the course of the show. Kyle, Rodda, welcome to The Bip Show. Thanks for having me on. Look, I, can I just start this by uh, reading from the uh, editorial in um, the latest issue of The Economist? Um this for me just when i when i sat down and read it um i was like hang on a second there yeah, maybe maybe we need to pay a bit more attention to the, to this um the it's the energy shock i thought i thought it was interesting that they characterized it as the first big scare of the green era reveals grave problems with the transition to clean energy. Um, Not what I would have expected from um, our uh, right on friends of The Economist. But anyway, they said this, just a couple of things. Since May, the price of a basket uh, of oil, coal, and gas since May has soared by 95%. Britain, the host of the COP26 summit, has turned its coal-fired power stations back on American petrol prices have hit $3 a gallon. Blackouts have engulfed China and India. And Vladimir Putin has just reminded Europe that its supply of fuel relies on Russian goodwill. So the panic is a reminder that modern life means abundant energy. Without it, bills become unaffordable, homes freeze, and businesses stall. The panic has also exposed deeper problems as the world shifts to a cleaner energy system, including inadequate investment in renewables and some transition um, fossil fuels. Interesting, not enough uh, investment in fossil fuels, which is something we've been talking about a bit. Rising geopolitical risks and flimsy safety buffers in power markets. Without rapid reforms, there will be more energy crises and perhaps a popular revolt against climate policies. I reckon there's an awful lot going on here. There, there are a lot of things building, um, Kyle, and of course, it's all feeding into the inflation pressures in some ways, which we've just touched on, that might force central banks uh, to do some things that might not be very currently uh, well-priced. Um, Kyle, what is your take on what is happening?
0: I think what's happened over the last couple of weeks is a combination of things, obviously. Um, I, I really like Ken's point off the top basically about narrative and, and stories and effectively just trying to follow sentiment um, as to you know really what's driving price action. Um, I think it's very much separate from how markets assess fundamentals um and you know how markets quote-unquote efficiently price assets so in fact i think it has very little to do with it um and over the last eight two or three weeks we had a market that got particularly um bearish um that's um uh, the investor survey only only really fleshed that out we're still in a market environment with a lot of dry powder and an excuse to take risk and, and enough moral hazard out there for for investors to to keep piling into equities while the proverbial music keeps playing I think that's where we are right now you know the, since the start of this week the, the narrative has been uh, US earnings season um, that profits are going to be you know far better than expected and, and everyone's buying into stocks on that basis was that really uh, that unknown well no not particularly yes we're getting stocks beating expectations earnings per share will be sort of 30 percent or whatever uh, for the annualized for, for the quarter um, but it's, it's really not that much of a surprise. So I think we've seen the story shift, and as the story shifts, you know, people buy into, into that news, um, and, and that's why we're seeing, you know, stocks move higher, risk assets um, move higher too. We'll talk about broader FX later. That's probably a little bit different in terms of, you know, why markets behave in that way. But nevertheless, um, you know, the the, the stories changed just a little bit. Um, but I think at the core, and, and when you're really sort of zooming out, you, you sort of, pull away from the noise um, on, a, on a day-to-day basis where, you know, these things just um, unfold is that I do think there's some, you know, reasonably concerning structural issues emerging in the global economy, uh, a potential trade-off that's emerging for central bankers between, um, you know, their inflation mandate and potentially their um, employment mandate. Uh, and, of course, a problem that um, really I don't think policymakers in, in any major way have run into for a couple of decades, at least not since the financial crisis, which is, there's a genuine supply shock that's going on uh, that um, can only really, really be solved through slow and painful reforms, in whether whether it be energy markets, whether it be environmental policy, whether it be economic policy as well, um, and can't be adjusted and, and fixed through through monetary policy or fiscal levers. So you don't um, think
1: you don't you don't think these things will kind of like the current kinks we're seeing um, are uh, just an a, an effect of the economy restarting after the whole it fell into last year and all those bottlenecks arriving, you don't think that they're going to um, iron themselves out?
0: Well, I think they will in part. I mean, the, the issue is is that the virus, I think, is going to be very, very persistent. And I think we see it very much through sort of a, a Western prism where, you know, for the most part, and this isn't entirely true, obviously, in, in developed economies, but for the most part, we're getting back to normal and things are feeling okay. Um, but the virus situation is still endemic, uh, is becoming endemic. Is still leading to, you know, effectively lowered economic activity in some pretty major places across the world. You know, for example, a place like China probably won't open up for the next 12 to 18 months. And although their economy can take it um, and and the global economy can probably wear that, um, it still suggests that these disruptions are going to be uh, around for a little while. I think if I was to distill what I think is happening at the moment, um, just to, to be much more succinct, is that I think markets are becoming much more wary and it's being picked up on from central bankers that some of these supply-side disruptions are going to be much more persistent, um, and it's starting to raise concerns in particular about um, the structure of the labour market um, and concerns of potential wage uh, wage price spirals, uh, which is really kind of the point where you start talking about runaway inflation, things that are you know more than just demand-driven, um, you know, signs of a healthy economy, more than just temporary supply shocks. It's sort of a vicious cycle where these, these supply disruptions, higher energy prices higher higher uh, consumer prices uh, overall starts to set off um, a, 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 raise, a a sort of a push higher in wages that that perpetuates this sort of inflationary cycle and will force central bankers to, to have to hike interest rates uh, much sooner than they would rather uh, would have previously expected um, and in effect kind of kill the economy to, to kill inflation and potentially scuttle markets along with it as well so I think that's a I
3: Kyle, I've got a question all the way from uh, over here in Amsterdam. What you've described is, to my mind, you yeah, know, fair, um, but it also rings true of the fact that you've also described what are inherently structural issues, so economically structural, be it geographically, be it country-specific, whatever. It what What's the monetary policy lever going to do to solve that? Raise rates, drop rates, whatever. You're not going to build more ports. You're not going to create... Better supply chains. I, I just, I, I, This is, this is the question that I've been asking myself and anyone that will bother listening to me for more than thirty seconds. Really, what, what's, what's the connection there? Like, what, ha, ha, where, where's the cause and effect? I, I can't see it. I, I think it comes back to wage growth personally,
0: um, and this, this is where I think that the stagflation argument becomes interesting because. For me, I and I still remain for the most part that we're not going to see, you know, runaway inflation that um, you know mirrors the nineteen seventies in the United States or, or in, in developed economies um, that you know requires some kind of bulker moment somewhere down the line to to absolutely decimate um, say the US economy or the global economy to, to bring things back into something of a an equilibrium. But I guess to, to spell out the the kind of story as I see it right now is and it's probably a bit that I haven't added into it yet, is that there's these structural issues that are that are driving inflation higher. The the reason why um, central bankers have been reasonably comfortable with um, letting inflation run a little bit hot was one they thought obviously they've got this new uh, average inflation targeting regime which which supposedly allows them to do so and you know catches up for years of missing that inflation target but they've also they've also done so on the basis that they prioritised the employment situation as, and this is the Fed more specifically in the United States on the belief that there's a lot of spare capacity in the labour market. Um, and that, you know, if you look at the unemployment rate before the pandemic in the United States, it was three and a half percent. You know, they could afford to really drive the economy hot on the belief that these supply side concerns would dissipate soon enough. Um, and that you wouldn't start to see upward pressure in wages because there was so much spare, so much labor sitting on the sidelines ready to come in that, you know, won't see wages rise. We won't see that sort of spiral of, you know, wage and prices. I think what's shifted in the last couple of months is that. Policymakers and the markets are becoming much more aware that potentially there's some structural changes. We You know, there's called this great resignation or, or whatever, or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, uh, the the quit, it. the quit, Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which means that maybe, maybe the um, U.S. labor market is much closer to full employment than we previously thought, and that's why wages are starting to rise. And there's a concern that the economy is starting to run too hot. And if you go back to the 1970s situation, you go through all the the reasons why you know we had had the, the wage price spiral then but lab, labor was much more powerful in the mix politically uh back then you labor versus capital or whatever whatever have you um and they were able to demand higher wages just by virtue of the political structures if it happens to be that the labor market is much tighter now in the united states uh then uh policy are estimating um this is where you can start to see wage price files and runaway inflation and i think it's at that point that the fed would have to get coaxed in to try and basically cool off an overheating economy, and that would be very, very detrimental if it happened too quickly.
1: So so that sounds that, um, you know, essentially the non-accelerated inflation rate of unemployment, or NIRU, has probably moved up because three or four years ago, we would have thought that that, well, it seemed to be, uh, remember when we hit almost, uh, the unemployment in these states was in threes, and they they started to get tiny little green shoots, right? Um, But now the unemployment rate is still high um, and we're seeing the uh, wages data picking up significantly. So what do you think is going on there? Um, Like, first of all, do you think that's the case? Um, And what do you think is going on?
0: Well, I mean, in short, I I, I don't know. Um, And that's (laughs) what I think. That's okay. Yeah, no, uh, but... That's why I think there's this risk being priced into the market, this uncertainty being priced in the market, and I think that's why we're starting to see the short end of the curve starting to sell off, is because there's that greater risk that um, the again neutral rate of unemployment effectively um, is much higher than before the pandemic, um, and I. Th- Think there's really two ways we can go about it that again this is just a shock to the to the u.s economy for example um that that kind of you know army um you know reserve army of labor or, or whatever you want to call it um i'm calling upon my bachelor of arts there um, as there's a, a bit of a reference to Marx there um <laughs> that uh, that may sweep in and, and keep wages low eventually or there's a, a genuine structural shift that's occurred in the economy this great resignation or whatever have you since the start of the pandemic um and it means that the labour market is, is much tighter uh, than, than we thought and that labour has a much higher bargaining power when it comes to comes to wages. Um, it's really concerning, I think, from that perspective. Concer- it's, it's a good thing, but concerning from, from a stability perspective, price stability perspective, that we still have jolt starters showing that there's more, more jobs out there than there are workers willing to, to take them. Is it just because women are, you know, staying home looking after their, their kids? And overwhelmingly, I know that's obviously sexist trope, but overwhelmingly, um, it, you know, that has been the dynamic since the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, will the retirees come back on, um, you know, come back into the workforce when you know that, um, their, their investments start to drop again? You know, will people, when the wealth effect starts to wear off, um, realize that they can't rely on their asset assets? You know, their house going up into twenty in five percent value and fifty percent of their share their share portfolio going up fifty percent every year to come back into the labour market because they need an income rather than just relying on their wealth? Are all these things cyclical, um, just related to the shop, or are they a structural shift? And no one knows that. I think that's why that risk is getting priced into the market. We're seeing that uncertainty arise at the front end of the, of the yield curve.
1: Yeah. What uh, if, uh, no, you go, for. Oh, I, Well, I just wanted to point out that, um, uh, you know, I don't know is, always, uh, is, is sometimes the smartest answer uh, to a question. Yes.
2: Refresh it. Well, and if you play that tape to the end, because I'm very much in, in, in the camp to say that we're actually in a, in a in a this weird, beautiful place where where that labour force is saying no, we we're not going to go back to what that was, and we need more to, to get us back in. And if we play the tape to the end, and and on the spot here, Kyle, like, mm-hmm. what 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 happens if if you have. That entire labour force and the largest economy in the world, and even here in Australia, also. But I mean, what the what like, where does who pays for that? Where does it come out? of? I mean, the, the answer theoretically is fairly easy about who pays for it, but what happens if you play the same game? After Kyle's
0: done, I'll answer that. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I it, it, it the, the balance shifts way back from capital to, to workers, I suppose, um, to, to use that kind of dichotomy, um, and it comes out of. Profits and it comes out of companies, and the, I, I don't think the system's set up to see a, a, a labour market with wage growth that's you know three and a half, four plus percent consistently in the United States because the inflation pressures would be too strong with asset prices the way that they are valued. Um, interest rates moving higher on that basis uh, would be very, very precarious. So. I mean, again, I, my crystal ball's a little bit a little bit foggy on that one, but um, I, I think if we continue to see that dynamic rise, it means some pretty major changes in the structure of the economy. And, you know, considering we're talking about financial markets here, the way asset prices are valued because of what would probably end up being higher higher discount rates at the very least, uh, would make for a reasonably volatile and stressful environment for, for, for assets to, to operate in, at least in the short term. And it would come down to whether the Fed is willing to, to tolerate that and the trade-offs that they face, I think.
3: And Ken? Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say, and basically, uh, Kyle is correct. Financial markets and the economy are two entirely different things. To to play out your scenario, James, uh, if this were to happen, from a, from an economy layman, man in the street point of view, the world would shit itself, quite, quite frankly, because The the disincentive eventually not to go back to work or to keep asking, or the incentive to keep asking for higher wages, would meet the cold hard reality of you can't afford a loaf of bread because no one's making them because the prices are too high, etc., etc. So do you want to starve or do you want to hold out for what you think you're worth? That's 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 the, in my mind, the, the end of that tape in inverted commas on the economic standpoint, and then. From from the market standpoint, Kyle's right. If you if you raise rates, discount rate, market shits itself. So you're facing a fairly fairly shit situation. I'm, I'm not going to hark back to 1929 because they're entirely different things. But you know, it, it, it doesn't look great. So I I don't think we get them. And I mean, I, I think you know somewhere somebody swallows a bit of pill, and and as per the usual case, it's the man in the street. Eventually, that bit of pill may just simply be slightly less bitter than it was, say, two years ago. But net, net, I don't think things are going to dramatically change. Right? I think there will be an equilibrium both in the real world and in markets, markets probably sooner, that gets it'll, around and gets dealt to. So it'll, it. It, it, it'll find its way. And, and Paul, just, uh, and
2: going to throw to you in a second that I, in the same way that we've seen a, a supply chain slow down, we've seen a – which has caused I- inflation pops. I think that we, we've got – Sort of in the in the midst of a labour force slowdown. Like it's not it's not moving like water. It's moving like cement uh, that just needs to be flattened out. That, that that's sort of my take on it. And I think it's going to come out of company margins. And I think there's just going to be there's a revaluation. But. Paul.
1: I will ask a question in a second, but I'm just going to do one thing first. Um, this episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners, a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in mining, energy, and tech. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au uh, don't forget to mention the BIP show in your email um, and they've got some great stuff going on there. Um, we are proud to be sponsored by them. So, Kyle, um, this all leads to one important question, which is, um, uh, as you, you touched on earlier, central banks, particularly the Fed, let's say we're talking about the Fed, um, are willing to let inflation run a little bit hot. Um what do you think it will take? and we've asked this Canvas this question a bit on the show, but what will it take for central banks to act? And I think interestingly with the the Fed, yes, um, uh, petrol prices or pump prices are high uh, in the u s, but they're not you know um, uh, problematically high yet. Um, but the energy question isn't so much of an issue for them. They've just got this general you know headline and core. Uh, uh, hot inflation at the moment. What do you think it would take for central banks to act and what do you think they would do?
0: Um, Well, I I suppose there's two ways that I'd answer this, especially based on the context of what I normally do with, with my role, which is, you know, there's opinion, my opinion of what I think they'll do or what they should do. Um, and then I think there's also what's priced into the market at the moment and, you know, how that's relevant to so obviously um, price action and, with you know, what our clients do anyway. Um, you know, if I spoke too much about the abstracts of, of the macro economy, I'm sure they, they'd probably fall asleep a lot of the time and, and come back to the question, of course, well, you know, how do I make money out of this? So, you know, what I think they'll do is that I think they'll let inflation run as hot as they possibly can. Um, the Fed will let inflation run very close to 25 to towards 3% um, above target for, for much of next year on the basis that they'll continue to push this line that these things uh, ought to pass and that this is a part of their average inflation targeting regime. And they'll fly very, very close to the sun to do that because they want to make sure that they can see that the labor market is at full capacity. And, of course, it will all depend on what the data says about the labor market if we continue to see really high wage growth and goes back to all those points that we said before. What I think the market is pricing in, however, and I think this is, you know, going back to the, the, the rates question that we were, we were talking about and what, um, you know, I, I suppose the financial market implications, the trading implications, the investing impl- implications are is that we do have the markets pricing in that um, the that inflation will be more or less transitory in some sense. So I, I like to look at the break-evens curve. If you look at that in the United States, it's very, very inverted. You know, the, the yeah, two-year break-evens somewhere towards 3%, a little bit lower. The, the 10-year break-even is down closer to 25 from memory or whatever it happens to be. So markets are pricing in that inflation is going to come down progressively. But what's happening now is that markets are pricing in that That inflation will come down progressively, but will settle at a higher level than what it was before the pandemic. And what I think the reaction we've seen in markets over the last couple of weeks, especially in result in response to some of this labour market data, and then of course concerns about ongoing supply shocks, is that effectively we're going to the, the, the central bankers are going to need to hike interest rates at some stage, probably by the middle of next year, and quite broadly across the globe to bring the inflation situation under control and try and ensure that they exit some sort of soft landing from this very, very hot economy that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months. And that has some pretty considerable implications as far as the price action. That's where I try and start to come in and actually add some value to our clients. Uh, but I think that's the dynamic we're looking at now, and that's that's how things will unfold in the next, again, say, 12 to 18 months.
3: Okay. So, Carl, just jumping in here, put everything you've just said, and, and I mean, i whether I agree or disagree is, is, is irrelevant. But let, let's put everything you've just said in answer to Paul's question yeah. in the context now of the BOE, right? So uh, for, for listeners that might not be up to speed, BOE, uh, the BOE rather, has been out on the wires over the weekends and whatever else, talking up the fact that, you know, don't blink, we're raising rates like now, like fucking right now, finger on the button, it's going, it's going, it's going. As a consequence, and you can't fault them, the market has reacted. So I suppose, let me ask you all of that uh, in the context of the BOE. How do you see it? Well, I mean, I I see it as being a a theme that will be, if if I've understood
0: your question correctly, a a, a theme that will be relevant for five or six central banks next year, outside probably the ECB, BOJ, uh, Swiss, Swiss National Bank, all of them are going to be in this position now, where they're going to have to try and tap the
3: brakes to bring inflation under control. Um, I think- okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to sorry I'm going to jump in because you're right. The question was poorly f- phrased, so let me rephrase it. So, on the back of all this rhetoric and all this jawboning out of the BOE, the market has essentially priced the next rate hike to come at literally the next meeting, so like within a couple of weeks or, or even sooner from the BOE.
0: Yeah, Um, I mean, there's again, there's there's two things there. There's um, the the fact that this is going to be endemic across five or six central uh, central banks over the next twelve months, and I think the markets can largely take that. And uh, and for the most part, too, it's it's largely self-limiting as well, because what we've already seen in the in the last. What is it? A um, couple of couple of days. The pound goes through the roof. The Aussie dollar's gone through the roof from the same expectations, and we've seen um, in, in implied measures. Of- I, challenge, I challenge that. The rationale is different, but we'll get there in a minute. Go on. Right. Um, my more major concern is effectively with with what the Fed does, because I think the markets can tolerate whatever, uh, and maybe the ECB to a lesser extent, um, but markets can tolerate what. Say the Bank of England does, what the RBA will do, and the RBNZ will do. It'll tighten global financial conditions a bit. Obviously, it'll, it'll cause some domestic um, ructions in in all of those economies. But it goes back really to what the, the Fed likes to wants wants to be able to control here, and what it needs to control. Um, you know, for, for my concern as far as global financial stability, it's it it's only a, a question of of the Fed global financial markets. The question, of the Fed. All the other ones are just good, good trading opportunities um, as it relates to try and you know playing policy divergence. Um, I may have misunderstood the, the question there, but that's that's the only sort of thing that jumps out at me as being um, conspicuous with 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 those sorts of. Um, well,
3: the the, the the question the question in a nutshell was: the sooner yeah. they move, is is there a higher risk of policy error? Like, I'm not I'm not disputing the fact that they move, be it the Fed or whoever, but do they move too early and commit a policy error? That, oh that's, yeah, I mean. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, apologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, I, And I think that's why we're starting to see the pick up in volatility. And I think this is the, the realisation across global markets is that it's probably going to get to a point where um, central bankers. And again, like I said, it's, it's mostly the Fed that everyone's concerned about. I, you know, we all, we all know that. Um, but wherever you look, um, the concern is now is that because this is con- caused largely by a, a, a supply side disruption, um, and it's not the good kind of inflation that you like to see when the economy is sort of humming along, that the, um, the central bank is uh, caught in a, sort of a catch-22 where they'll either have to pick their inflation mandate and try and um, achieve their inflation mandate or uh, sacrifice that, with the exception of, you know, like the RBNZ, you know, the Kiwi economy is running pretty strong. Um, but they'll have to sacrifice the labor market and growth going forward in order to rein all of this in. Um, it sets up a very precarious balance.
1: So, um, there, there has been, um, a, the, a, a, in a bit of anticipation for this, there has been a big bond uh, sell off uh, at the front end of the curve you mentioned, inflation break evens. Um, but, uh, you know, when you look at government bonds, I think uh, this is just from memory now, but. Um, Aussie five years at one point in one day dusted like twenty bips worth of yield um uh in, in, in a single day, which is a lot for um, you know, in this market. Um uh, it's kind of settled down now a little bit, but there has been a notable move. Um what do you think the bond market is is saying here, uh Carl? Yeah, I know I think it
0: goes back to what that I took took a little while. I was a bit of juice there to, to pick up on what, what Ken was talking about, um, which is uh, effectively the markets are pricing in that um, interest rate hikes will have to come, and that it may take um, uh, so it may may have a, a detrimental impact on, on growth going forward. And that's just going to be have going to have to be something that policymakers will have to wear and accept. Um, it, the dynamic is eased off to start the week. There's this kind of you know positive sentiment in the market that seems to, to have um, unwound this a little bit. But one thing that I've been following fairly closely is just the, you know, the 2.10 spread across global markets, you know, mostly obviously on, on US treasuries, but locally here too. Um, and, you know, in your, in your bonds and whatever as well, which are less relevant. But what we've seen is a little bit of a flattening of the yield curve. And what says to me is that the, the markets are pricing in again, that the that central bankers are allowed to be more aggressive into trying containing these things. But in doing so, that they might have to sacrifice longer-term growth prospects and, of course, as, as well, run run the risk of um, unintended consequences um, from tightening too quickly when, you know, of course, they have no choice to, 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 to do so otherwise. So I think that's really what we're, we're seeing in the in the bond market at the moment. And I, I'm keeping an eye on that sort of, again, that 10 to spread um, as a bit of an indicator that, you know, markets are worried that, um, you know, in some small way, central bankers will have to pull a vulgar to get get things in line a little bit.
1: Yeah, um, and of course, uh, uh, the 210 spread is the um, the classic uh, recession indicator <laughs> too. So um, as that narrows, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as that spread narrows, uh, I'm sure there's got to be some interesting conversations. Um, wh- one of the things that I heard, uh, absolutely superb explanation I heard for this, uh, the um, the uh, sell-off in the front end of the curve was that basically, quite simply, nobody wants to be uh, holding negative uh, uh, real yield assets. So, like, real yields are something like minus five in the US at the moment um, off the Fed funds rate versus um, uh, where inflation is, because inflation is around five, funds rates, like, zero, effectively. Um, so, um, you know, your real rate is, um, is negative five. So... Uh, And there's no sign of that really changing. So people are like, yeah, I can't can't be holding on to this, yours. Um, But, yeah, um, Ken, I know this is an area that you uh, like to follow. Um, What do you think?
3: Yeah. Uh, Look, I, I suppose I want to get Kyle's take on what I sort of alluded to at the top of the show in that if you cut out the noise and just look at a couple of not necessarily charts, but just apply, I suppose, common sense under the following framework. And that framework, I've sort of come to the realization in the last at least 12 months or probably longer, is that cross-assets and, and predominantly rates, but also to a degree, commodities and, and various other bits and pieces, now trade entirely like FX pretty much has done all along, right? So, and what I mean by that, FX is always essentially traded with flow slash momentum. What that's always led to has always been... Fairly erratic overshoots in terms of price action, with then a relatively steady and fairly quick reversion back to the mean, whether that's a trend or a sideways market or whatever it may be. But they always acted as a fairly good uh, discount mechanism and a fairly quick one, right? A relatively efficient one. But the the downside were those erratic and fairly significant overshoots. To my mind, I think that's exactly what's happening in the cross asset space and specifically rates. To that point, essentially, what we've seen in the in the short end across the the major banks, so the Fed, certainly BoN, whatever else. To my mind, it's it's little more than momentum and every man is dog shifting into the same trade until such time as they're battered out of it and/or thinking they're clever enough to see the turn before everyone else does. So. I suppose, Kyle. what I'm asking is, you know, is it any more complex than that? Because the macro picture, yeah, but the macro picture is sort of you're talking a 9, 12, 18-month horizon, and you've got to be real money to be sort of investing with a duration out for how many years, right? If you're punting or if you're levered money, if you're a hedge fund or whatever, you know, you, you take the macro backdrop, but aren't you just trying to sort of steer the herd and be ahead of the herd and therefore just run with the herd, right? Where do you see that? Yeah. I tend to agree. I mean, like I
0: suppose my bias is a little bit the fact that, you know, IG, we sit, you know, CFT provider, we sit with a lot of retail clients and their conversation is not about generally, you know, how can I most appropriately price this this asset or what is fair value for this particular asset is, you know, what is the quickest way between me and earning a buck um, to put it bluntly. And well, that's what everyone does, surely, but yeah. Well, it is, it is, but I mean, if you read your, you know, I've got some the CFA books gathering dust on the on the um, counter at the moment behind me, um, and you know, if you, if you read through that for the most part, you know, your, your capital markets theory says, you know, that uh, your, your sort of efficient market hypothesis or whatever it is, is that markets are constantly trying to discount the appropriate value of you know, the future cash flows of the stock or whatever it happens to be, you know what I mean? Um, and really, I think if you look at market market behavior, I see it sort of more through the kind of old, you know, and beauty contest thing, right, is that you're trying to look at the other person across from you and see what they're doing so you can make a buck um, off, off, off their their behavior. Um, and so, so to go back to my uh, initial point, which is basically I, the way that I see the world is very similar to you, that a lot of these price movements and, and, and stories that we tell ourselves, particularly, say, in the, in the, in the commentary, are just sort of convenient um post-hoc analyses that try to, you know, give give meaning to, to pretty much random things that are happening in the world. And what's actually driving things is, is like you said, uh, technicals and momentum where people are trying to, to follow one another into into a successful trade until they cannot push against that, um, you know, wall any further and, and they get pushed back a little bit. Um, I think that's pretty much true that, you know, the marginal moves in financial markets is already or always driven by a speculator and a speculator who's trying to effectively, you know, again make a quick quit um, by trading momentum, trading a breakout, trading a trend, trading a story, um, and not without that much consideration for for fundamentals or valuations. What, what I will say though, as it relates to the um, the uh, central bank conversation, is that I think you start with the narrative with with the Fed at the moment, which I think is is highly relevant. Um, and certainly something that's, you know, fundamentally true that there is concerns that there are inflation pressures building and that the Fed will probably have to hike interest rates some, at some point next year um, to, to, to curb the, the effects of higher inflation. What happens around that, though, again, is all of those thematic trades that are driven by flows, momentum and, and technicals. And if you draw it to the, the comparison with the RBA at the moment, you, you know, you spoke about, I think, off the top, Paul, that five, year, five years drop by 20 basis points in the day. You know, are you telling me that the, that the RBA is really going to hike interest rates twice next year with a later market that it is now in Australia? And you know, if you look at break evens curves and apply measures of inflation, um, you know, no one's really pricing any more than two and a half percent inflation in the, in Australia uh, for the next you know ten years or whatever it happens to be. So we we're, we're really in the position where the RBA is going to have to slam on the brakes. No. But all of that trade is sort of tied into that sort of broader momentum, you know, momentum play. It's, it's a lot of noise. And if we I do think we'll get the snap snapback. Um, it doesn't change the fact that these, these issues will, will be relevant. I still think they're very relevant in the United States, but there's a lot of dislocations out there at the moment, which is fantastic from a trading point of view, uh, but it doesn't tell you too much about the truth of the matter in the world.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, James and king of the free kick question for you, Kyle. Uh, we've, we're, we're right under the thick of US moons. So in my view, they've been a beat. Um, even though margins are down, we've seen energy is getting a bid. We're seeing that the banks are getting a pretty decent bid. The reagent track. Where do you see the best uh, the best sectors to be at the moment?
1: I mean,
0: again, sort of what what I do anyway is just to, to really follow sentiment, and just follow the story, irrespective. Um, because I mean, if you look at sort of the. the, the uh, markets that IG clients generally like to, or particularly our sort of high-value clients like to trade. It's it's your your major indices and, and your major FX FX pairs and a bit of oil and a bit of gold. Um, so you know, digging into the weeds, I don't try and do too much um, because it probably goes you know, either beyond my pay grade or certainly out of my areas expertise. But I mean, I think if you're looking at the areas of the market that, that are you know potential potentially here that um, that are, are going to drive prices higher. Um, It's that financials play at the moment. Um, There were really interesting results last week in terms of, you know, basically um, speaking up the strength of the U.S. consumer over the next couple of quarters, speaking up their own earnings, and and we saw once again, you know, a deluge of um, cash being brought into, you know, back onto, eventually be put back back into into, into the investors' pockets that, you know, are put aside as, um, you know, you know, for 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 bad loans over the last twelve to eighteen months or so for um yeah, for for the banks. And the other thing too, I suppose, is just you know the tech names. It's a really really um really good specy trade going into a uh, US earnings season, which is basically tech sells off into it. Uh, they almost always beat expectations um, and they drive the market higher. But again, you know, we for the most part, I look at more sort of index. Speculating on the futures markets and, and trying to trade the index, and that's just all sort of following sentiment at the moment. That the prevailing narrative, obviously, is that the broad market is beating expectations, no matter where it's coming from, and, um, and that it's time to buy stock on that basis. Uh,
2: the FX best FX basis, and Ken, oh, this this has to be the end of it because we are out
3: of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, I'll surmise it very quickly. Kyle, to my mind, everything comes down to the big dollar, the greenback, the US buck, right? So my question to you is, forget the rationale, where do you see it over the next month and how do you see it, the US dollar? Um, I see
0: it a little bit lower just on the basis that I think the uh, energy crisis in Europe is going to subside a little bit. Um, We're starting to see, I think, a bit of a peaking out in the short term of energy prices. And the reason why I say keep that as relevant is when I try and uh, trade trade, these things, and you know, I like to trade the euro-USDs, you, you follow real yields more than anything else and you, you follow the spreads, and that gives you a pretty good idea of where the trends are. What What happened with um, real yields in Europe is that they they dived considerably when inflation expectations picked up because of this energy shock, and the euro got took an absolute bath. So we, we've sort of seen this kind of spin around in commodity currencies over the last couple of weeks, which was largely due to positioning and the fact that commodity prices are going up. But the US dollar held up reasonably strongly de- despite that. Um, I think the euro is starting to turn around and it'll, it'll push the US dollar lower for a little while and we'll see a bit of broad-based weakness in the, in the dollar. I think we'll start to see a little bit of stability in yields too because of uh, the energy crisis subsiding um, as well. Um, so again, there'll be that kind of play into risk, play into the euro. I even think the yen might come back a little bit um, just because it's over overbought. That's a different story. In the longer run, I'm really bully, I'm bullish the dollar because I think the Fed tightens and the, the world doesn't like that and they'll, they'll go back into, into dollars. But over the month, I, I think the, the dollar starts to fade a little bit from here in what's probably a broader uptrend. Good.
1: Perfect. Wonderful. Um, look, Kyle, uh, I know you've got things to do. Um, so thanks very much. We're going to wrap it up. It's been great having you on the show, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Bib Show has been brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners, a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies on the ASX, primarily in mining, energy and tech. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's uh, upcoming raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. Reminder, every Thursday, Sydney time, we uh, do a Twitter Spaces event. It's really fun. We had Fraser Perry from Vice of the Roy Research on there last week. It uh, was pretty good fun. Yeah, um, James has a website which is hosting a whole bunch of extras. Um, uh, so Google Wheelin Capital and follow the links to the Bip Show. Um, we're all on Twitter individually too at Colgo at James Wheelin forty two at Ken Vexler and Kyle. You're at Kyle Rodder. Is that right or Kyle Rodder Ig?
0: Ah uh, yeah, Kyle Kyle R underscore Ig.
1: Yeah, uh, Kyle is great. Lots of ho- heaps of charts, insights, uh, daily um, uh, updates. Um, you'll um, get, we'll uh, post the clips from his many, many media appearances on there too. Uh, and he's also good for a bit of banter, uh, which is what we like to see. Um, so, uh, Ken, it's been real. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I uh, managed to stay awake. It's good. It's good. More good. coffee.
1: Good, good achievement. Kyle,
3: thank you. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, thanks for having me.
1: And James, uh, great chatting.
3: Very always
2: good. Uh, I'll talk to
1: you later on. Okay, the show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening.